and listen to me, listen to me, Nick. Like I do this all the time, and if I go out at the at the house with the girl, Daddy has his toys, and then Matty has all his toys. Okay. But I have to yell at you guys. Okay, what? Like everything they do at this house, they can't trust everything at Grandma's house. Okay. Okay, then what? Then you're not listening to me. Then you're not listening to me. I asked you not to do something. Linda, but listen to me. Look at if we do something, if you get that out, that bird thing off, you're gonna break it. Okay, but I'm asking, I'm letting you know but that you cannot. You know, Linda, no, Linda, I'm. Li- lick it, lick it. You're not listening to me. Linda, listen to me now. Listen to me now. No, you're not listening. I said no cupcakes. And you try to get cupcakes and you try to ask grandma. Linda, Didn't you? Linda, lick it, lick it, lick it. He has a perfectly good explanation. Linda just doesn't understand. Things are different at grandma's house. You can touch anything at grandma's house. You can have cupcakes for supper at grandma's house. It doesn't matter. If you break things at grandma's house, it's okay. Mateo has a really good explanation for what he did. Well, good morning, church. I am not Linda. I am Amy Barnhill, and um, my husband and I have uh, made Reach Church our home for quite a few years. Um, I saw this same kind of behavior in my kids when I was raising, we have three sons. When I was raising them, we called it the yabbits. So if the boys got caught doing something they weren't supposed to be doing, or if they weren't doing something they were supposed to be doing, and they got called out, their excuses usually started with, yeah, but, and they came up with a really good excuse for their behavior. It's human nature to make excuses for our sin. It is human nature to justify our junk, the stuff that we carry around. So this is nothing new, and we're going to see that very clearly in our passage this morning. Before we begin, I want to make sure that everyone has a Bible in hand, either in your device. Our ushers are going to come. If you need a Bible, if you forgot yours at home, and you want to just follow along with one of These Bibles, or if you need a Bible, these are a gift for you. So just raise up your hand, and they'll make sure you can get one in your hand. And we are going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 13 today. So go ahead and open your Bible to chapter 13 of 1 Samuel. It's in the beginning of the book. And before we begin, we're going to pray. We're going to just ask the Lord to bless our time together this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you have given us your word so that we can know what it means to live a life that is pleasing in your eyes. Lord, we thank you that um, for the worship team that has already prepared our hearts to receive what you have for us. Lord, they have ushered us into um, the foot of your throne. So we ask now, Lord, I ask that my words would be pleasing to you, that I would decrease and that you would increase and fill this space with your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, since the beginning of the year, we've been in 1 Samuel. We have been looking at a little bit of the history of Israel. And recently, Israel decided that they needed a king, that they wanted a human leader. When all along, God had been their king. They were part of a theocracy. That meant God was their leader. He was their king. 
they decided they wanted to be like everyone else around them. So we met Saul. Saul was the man the people chose to be their king. Um, there were several good things about Saul that we've learned so far. First of all, from the outside, he looked like a king. The scripture says that he was about a head taller than everyone else, so he stood out. He was very handsome. He was from a wealthy family. Uh, he, he fit the part of royalty. Uh, he was a responsible young man. Uh, when we first met him, he had been sent out to find his father's donkeys. His donkey, the donkeys had wandered away from home. The father was concerned about that. Saul went out and he stayed the course until he found the donkeys. And, and I love that his concern was that he didn't want his father to worry. And so he was a responsible young man. That was a very um, appealing trait for him. He was also humble. Early on in his life, he was humble. He did not see himself as kingly material. Uh, he admitted he was from the tribe of Benjamin, which was the least among the 12 tribes. So he didn't see himself as kingly material. And that is a, a really good sign of humility in him. And then lastly, he was a very forgiving individual. And I saw that come to light when he refused to hold a grudge against the group of men who didn't think that he should be king. And uh, they didn't celebrate at the ordination. They were really against him. But, but Saul chose to forego that wrong. He chose to forego that offense. Even when he was being encouraged by the people who were supporting him, they said, you should go after those guys. He chose to forgive, and he showed restraint instead of showing retaliation, which he could have because he was king. So what we see in Saul today is the beginning of a very slippery slope that he is on. Um, he, his faith begins to waver, and that weakened faith leads to insecurity, leads to impatience, it leads to compromise, and then ultimately it leads to his disobedience. Under pressure, Saul fails to trust God, he fails to wait on God's perfect timing, and he fails to obey God's word. So we're going to see that Paul is very much like our little friend Mateo from that video. When he's caught in sin, he resorts to excuses and blaming others without any sign that he accepts that he did anything wrong. There's no hint of personal responsibility. There's no hint of repentance or turning away from his behavior. There's only evidence of a man desperately trying to justify his junk. So when I study the word and when I um, teach, I like to ask and answer three questions. And those are three questions that we're going to look at today as we work through this passage. What do I learn about God? What do I learn about man or mankind? And then what do I learn about God and man and that relationship between God and man? So we're going to jump into chapter 13 of 1 Samuel, first couple of verses. Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned for 42 years. Saul selected 3,000 special troops from the army of Israel and sent the rest of the men home. He took 2,000 of the chosen men with him to Michmash and the hill country of Bethel. The other 1,000 went with Saul's son Jonathan to Gibeah in the land of Benjamin. So the last several weeks, we have watched this preparation of, of Saul for this kingship. 
And Saul has been anointed, ordained, and equipped with the Holy Spirit. We saw that. We read that several times. He has been confirmed by Samuel. Samuel was the prophet at this time in history. He was confirmed in front of all Israel. And he even proved, just a couple weeks ago, he proved that he was worthy of this role by leading the nation of Israel in their war with the Ammonites. So right away, we learn something about God in these first two verses. When God calls to a task, a work, or a role, God is faithful to prepare for that task, that work, or that role. When God calls and equips, he prepares his servant to fulfill that calling. He never asks us to operate in our own ability or under our own strength. We also see in this passage that God is a God of his word, that he knows all things. He knows the end from the beginning. When Israel decided that she wanted to be like all the other nations around her and she rejected God as her king, God warned that this exact moment in history would come. And he said, the king will draft your sons and assign them to his chariots and charioteers. Some will be generals and captains in his army. So here we see Israel's first standing army. Up to this time, Israel had operated with a militia. When there was a need for a war or a battle or fight, Israel called up the, the, um, the warriors. Saul has now called 3,000 men to full-time service. He has employed the sons and daughters of the people of Israel, 2,000 with him, 1,000 with his son Jonathan. So what we learn about God right away, he equips us when he calls us, he's true to his word, and he knows all things. So let's keep moving into verse 3. Soon after this, Jonathan attacked and defeated the garrison of Philistines at Geba. The news spread quickly among the Philistines. So Saul blew the ram's horn throughout the land, saying, Hebrews, hear this, rise up in revolt. All nation heard the news that Saul had destroyed the Philistine garrison at Geba and, and that the Philistines now hated the Israelites more than ever. So the entire Israelite army was summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. The Philistines mustered a mighty army of 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and as many warriors as the grains of sand on the seashore. They camped at Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. Long-standing beef between Israel and the Philistines. So think about Israel and Palestine today. Think about Green Bay Packers, Chicago Bears. Think about Nebraska, Iowa. Jonathan is introduced here. He is Saul's firstborn son. Um, ideally, in a perfect world, in Saul's perfect world, Jonathan would be his heir. And Jonathan ultimately becomes a great warrior, in the, um, a great commander in the army of Israel. So Jonathan went out and defeated the Philistine garrison, which caused this rift between these two nations to intensify. And the Philistines now hated the Israelites more than ever. There was a lot of tension there. Um, things were fragile. Um, in addition to the 3,000 men that were already employed in full-time service, Saul has now called up all the warriors throughout the nation of Israel 
and many have come to prepare for this battle. However, the Philistines are doing the same thing, and they are mustering up this great mighty army, and they gather their troops, and so everyone is prepared for a battle. Unfortunately for the Israelites, the Philistines had greater advances in the weapons of war. Uh, They had access to chariots and horses. They had trained charioteers. They had They were very advanced in weaponry. And we'll see that later in this passage in that they had cornered the market on blacksmithing. So they didn't allow any Hebrew blacksmiths in the the area at all. And and so the the Israelites had no way to make spears or swords. Um, If they needed their farm tools sharpened, they had to go to their enemy to sharpen their farm tools. And they were greatly overpriced and overcharged. And probably under sharpened. Um, so what started out as this little victory for Israel, Jonathan leading that garrison um, and defeating that garrison, is now taking a turn for the worst for Israel. And we're gonna hurt, we're gonna rush through this first part of this passage because the meat of this message is right in the middle. So let's look at what happens in verse six. The men of Israel saw what a tight spot they were in. And because they were hard-pressed by the enemy, they tried to hide in caves, in thickets, rocks, holes, and cisterns. Some of them crossed the Jordan River and escaped into the land of Gad and Gilead. So here's something that we can learn about mankind. When facing a stressful or frightening situation, a situation that appears to be completely out of our control, Men tend to respond in one of two ways. They stand up and fight. They're ready to go to battle. Or they run away. It's called a fight or flight response. The fight response happens when you hear about people single-handedly lifting a car that had fallen on someone or taking on a wild animal because a loved one is in danger. It's physiological response to danger or stress. Some, some of us will stand up and fight. Some of us will just run away. The men of Israel initially rose to the challenge of the Philistines. They, they were coming off this little victory, so they thought they had the upper hand. However, when the odds are carefully weighed and they saw the strength and power of their enemy, their visible enemy, they lost sight of the strength and the power of their invisible God. God and and their courage quickly began to slip away. So they responded by running away. This is a common response for us today. When we choose to evaluate the power and, uh, and the strength of our enemies against our own power and strength, we run the risk of coming up short. When our enemies are Um, When our enemies outnumber and overpower, when odds are stacked against us, it is reasonable to concede and live in fear. That's our natural response. That's the human nature in us. It is in our nature to run away from our enemies. Only when we look at our enemies through the lens of the strength and the supernatural power of our God are we able to stand up when when we find ourselves hard-pressed and in tight spots. 
Israel looked at the numbers. They she weighed the odds. And they failed to take in, into account what they knew about their God. They forgot their experience with this all-power supernatural God. And so their natural response was to flee and run away. Second part of 7b. Meanwhile, Saul stayed at Gilgal and his men were trembling with fear. Saul waited there seven days for Samuel as Samuel had instructed him earlier, but Samuel still didn't come. Saul realized that his troops were rapidly slipping away. So he demanded, bring me the burnt offering and the peace offering. And Saul sacrificed the burnt offering himself. If we think back to immediately following Saul's public anointing as the king of Israel, Samuel had said, these were Samuel's instructions to Saul, go down to Gilgal ahead of me. I will join you there to sacrifice burnt offerings and peace offerings. You must wait for seven days until I arrive and give you further instructions. That was in chapter 10, verse 8. Through Samuel, God had given very clear instructions. Go to Gilgal. Check. Wait seven days. Check. I, Samuel, will join you to sacrifice the burnt offerings and the peace offerings. Oops. Samuel almost got it right. He waited seven days, but he failed to wait for Samuel to arrive. I want to share a truth with you today that I have learned the hard way. Partial obedience is still disobedience. Partial obedience is still disobedience. It's kind of like my husband and I laugh about this. It's kind of like being almost true or kind of true or like kind of pregnant or speeding just a little. Saul failed to act in obedience. It's as simple as that. He saw his troops fading away. He noticed that Samuel was nowhere to be found. The enemy was gaining in strength and in numbers. So he chose to take matters into his own hands. And don't you and I do the same thing. When we are afraid, when we are impatient, when we are proud, when we think we have a better way. Or we think that God's word doesn't apply to us, or God's word, surely God's word doesn't apply to this situation. I wish I didn't have so many personal experiences and examples to insert here. Times that I have taken matters into my own hands and chosen my own way, times I have rushed ahead of God's timing and God's plan. I was just talking to my son yesterday, who's facing some real life changes. And I told him, you know, the first compromise with God's word and God's command is the hardest. The first one's the hardest. From there, it gets easier. We callous our hearts to that nudging of the Holy Spirit. We justify our situation. We learn to, to, to deny that nudging. And we put off to tomorrow what we know we should do today. And soon enough... We find that we're not seeking the Lord's will at all. The first compromise is the hardest. 
This is the first compromise we're going to see in Saul. And we're going to continue to see that each subsequent compromise comes easier and quicker. Samuel had given very clear instructions regarding the sacrifice. Saul thought he had a better way. Samuel also, just last week, Andrew took us through Samuel's uh, farewell speech just last week. And in that speech, he outlined the consequences for Israel regarding obedience and disobedience. What would happen with whatever they chose. Um, ignorance was never an excuse for Israel because God was always very faithful to forewarn the consequences of their choices. So they couldn't say, we didn't know, you didn't tell us, because God is faithful to always forewarn the consequences of sin. So if they, Israel, obeyed the commands, the results would be good. The results would be good. If they chose disobedience, rebellion, idolatry, which became their habit, they should not be surprised when they found themselves at odds with God. This is how it was said just um, in chapter 12, verses 14 and 15. If you fear the Lord and serve and obey him and do not rebel against his commands, and if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, good. There are consequences to obedience, and they're good. But... If you do not obey the Lord and if you rebel against his commands, his hand will be against you and it will be against your ancestors, just as it was against your ancestors. So what do we learn about God and man from this? Well, a couple of things. The first is that compromising with God's word and God's commands has consequences. Compromising with God's word has consequences. The second is that God is merciful to always forewarn the consequences of sin. So we know before we choose. This book is full of warnings. God warns us the consequences of our choices because he wants what is best for us. He knows what is best for us because he has fearfully and wonderfully made each of us. And he has a very unique and specific and individualized plan and purpose for each one of us. God wants a relationship with his creation. And he wants to bless his creation. If King Saul would obey, God had plans for future blessings for the king and for the kingdom of Israel. If not, there would be a very different outcome. Saul's greatest failure in this situation and, and in his life, and we'll see it many times in the weeks to come, but his greatest failure is that he failed to trust God. Um, I couldn't help but think as I looked at this passage and prepared for today, I couldn't help but hear in my head over and over that children's hymn, Trust and Obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. So I want you to think with me, church. Think about what makes it hard for you to trust God. When he doesn't act like we expect or think he should, 
is that when he asks us to do hard things without showing us what is um, next or, or without showing us the end from the very beginning? Is it when his timing doesn't seem to line up with yours? I believe the root of our distrust of God is limited knowledge. When we don't know enough about a person, uh, a thing or an idea, it makes it hard to trust that person, thing or idea. Not knowing God or having a limited knowledge or understanding of who he is makes it hard to trust him. When we know God, we can accept that his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are far beyond our own thoughts. We, come, we become familiar with his long history of faithfulness and we find it easier to trust him. We can wait for his timing because we know that his timing is perfect. We have seen it. We know that his timing is best because we've experienced it. This is a very important lesson that Saul failed to learn and that he failed to teach the nation of Israel. When we trust God, we're empowered to obey, even, even when the circumstances appear to be stacked against us, even when things don't make sense. When we trust God, he gives us that ability to follow through in obedience. So verse 10, just as Saul was finishing with the burnt offering, Samuel arrived. Saul went out to meet him and welcome him, but Samuel said, what is this you have done? Samuel knows right away something is wrong. Maybe he saw the smoke over the camp. Maybe he smelled the burning carcass. And his question for Saul is, does not come out of ignorance. It's not because Samuel didn't know what was going on. His question for Saul was an opportunity for Saul to repent. An invitation to Choose forgiveness, an opportunity to be reconciled. I love that our God is a God of second and third chances. By making us aware of our sin, God is giving us the opportunity to repent. He is handing out an invitation to come and receive forgiveness. This is the same invitation that he's addressed to you and me. Come. Come to the altar of forgiveness. I remember praying for my kids that they would get caught in their sin. Hard to be my kid, isn't it? Because <laughs> there were a lot of answered prayers. <sighs> but you know, this was the only way, and I knew it. This was the only way they would come to know and experience that great blessing of forgiveness. And that they would come to know reconciliation with their heavenly father. When we fall flat on our face, when we get up and humbly ask God's forgiveness and receive it, we come to know God a little bit more. We recognize that he's merciful and that his grace knows no limits. We come to know him better through each failure and through each triumph. As we know and trust God more, we're empowered to obey during each subsequent trial. So, 
Let's see how Saul does in that area. Second part of verse 11. Saul replied, I saw my men scattering from me, and you didn't arrive when you said you would, and the Philistines are at Michmash ready for battle. So I said, the Philistines are ready to march against us at Gilgal, and I haven't even asked for the Lord's help. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering myself before you came. Linda, Linda, you don't understand. Things are different here. Listen to me. When backed into that corner, Saul failed to respond with humility. He failed to take on any amount of personal responsibility. Instead, what does he do? He played the blame game. He blamed Samuel for being late. He blamed his soldiers for being cowards. Cowards. He blamed his army for being, or his enemy for being large and in charge. Basically, he said, and maybe you've said it too, it's not my fault. Well, as I looked at this passage, I couldn't help but recognize that I'm a little bit like Saul. When hard-pressed, we tend to resort to blaming others and self-justification. We blame our parents for how they raised us. We blame our employers for demanding too much and paying too little. We blame our teachers, our circumstances, our government, and our spouses. Rarely do we first take a good hard look at ourselves as maybe being the reason that we're backed into the corner? And if we can't find someone or something to blame, we resort to self-justification. We justify our junk with phrases like, that's just the way I am. I'm just too old to change. I deserve it. I worked hard for this. We justify our harmful words with phrases like, well, I was just kidding. Can't you take a joke? My husband Kevin uses this tactic when trying to do things like wear socks with his sandals <laughs> and wear white shoes with his khaki pants. He says, Amy, I've been doing this for 30 years. Can't you just love me for who I am? <laughs> I tell him to aim higher and try harder. <laughs> But really, I think we could all agree that it's easier to make excuses than to make changes. Saul was without excuse, and he had no one to blame. So we read back in chapter 10. At, the, at that time, the Spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you, and you will prophesy with them. You will be changed into a different person. Saul had no excuse and he had no one to blame because he was a different person. In Christ, with the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, we have been changed. The old is gone, the new has come. We cannot continue using late excuses to justify our junk. And I'm not denying that we all have junk to deal with. I'm not denying that. But church, that junk has been covered by the blood of Christ. We cannot continue pointing fingers at others and excusing our sins while at the same time expecting God to bless us. Just one more thing we need to notice about um, Saul's excuses. He said, I felt compelled 
to offer the burnt offering myself before you came. Friends, the Spirit of God will never compel you to act against the Word of God. Saul was called to be king. He was not called, ordained, or qualified to be the spiritual leader of Israel. That role was reserved for prophets and priests. The guidelines had been clearly defined in God's word. The prophets had clearly communicated that to Saul. God's spirit will never call, compel, guide, or permit you to act against the word of God. Let's look at verse 13. How foolish, Samuel exclaimed, you have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. Had you kept it, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom must end, for the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. The Lord has already appointed him to be the leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Saul's actions and Saul's behavior, the choices that he made, showed that he was a man after Israel's heart. He wanted to be held in high esteem with the people. God wanted a man after his own heart to lead his people. A man who would trust and obey. So we put ourselves in a dangerous position when we care more about what people think than what God thinks. That's a very dangerous place to put ourselves in. Saul wanted to please the people more than he wanted to please God. And this attitude, this way of living, had grave and long-lasting consequences for the king. Saul missed out on creating a legacy for his family. His son would never be king. His presence in the royal lineage of Israel will be short-lived for Saul. It will end with him. His grandsons will never be king. God wants men and women after his own heart to lead the way. This is really a good lesson for our recent high school graduates. I remember sending my boys off to school, and I, I, I told them, one of two things will happen as you step out of our house and into the world on your own. You will either rub off on the world, which would be a really great thing, or you'll allow the world to rub off on you. The choice is up to you. So we need to ask ourselves today, do I want the favor of man or the favor of God? Do I want my life and the way I live it to be pleasing to men and have that worldly acclaim and accolades? Or do I want it to be pleasing to God? Under pressure, Saul revealed the true state of his heart. His reign over Israel will be temporary as God continues to seek after a man after his own heart. So now the, the rest of chapter 13, I'm just going to summarize it for us. Samuel left. He had these last words for Saul, and he left, went back either to Ramah, or I'm not sure where he went. Um, Saul took an inventory of his army now. We remember back in the beginning of the passage, he had these 3,000 special troops, plus he had called all, rallied all Israel to rise up and to um, fight against the Philistines. So now when he takes this inventory, he's down to 600 men. 
the Philistines continue their military preparation, and they just about have Israel surrounded. They have sent out troops in all different directions, so they just about have Israel surrounded. They have a great advantage because they have mastered that art of blacksmithing, and they allow no Hebrews to learn. So as Israel prepares for battle, only Saul and Jonathan have a sword or a spear. The rest of Israel's army will fight with farm implements. So in spite of this difficult situation, we're going to see in the weeks to come that God has not given up on Israel. God has not turned his back on Israel, even though she has let him down once again. God has not forgotten his chosen people. Instead, what I see in this final little bit of chapter 13 is that God is giving his people yet another opportunity to trust and obey. It's hard to live a life having one without the other. Trusting God without ever acting on it produces a faith that can be weak and wishy-washy. It becomes empty words and fragile faith. It feeds a lifestyle of compromise and self-reliance. On the other hand, obedience, apart from that trust in God, can quickly lead to a salvation by works mentality. Thinking that we're worthy because of our many acts of obedience, thinking that because we do all the right things, we even come to church on a, on a holiday weekend, we are good with God. Obedience is the byproduct of trusting God. It's not a badge of honor. It's not a certificate of accomplishment. It's not a participation award. It's not a means of salvation. It is the good works that James talks about and that Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 2. God calls us to trust and obey. He wants us to believe him, but he doesn't ask us to do it blindly. He asks us to do it based on his long-standing history of being true to his word and being true to his people and being true to his character. He's proven himself faithful and trustworthy, and he wants us to know him. So when we work out these two attributes together, this trust and obey, we develop a beautiful, loving relationship with God, just as he intended it from the very beginning. The more we know him, the more we trust him, the more we're enabled to walk in obedience. Trusting God will manifest itself in obedience to God and obedience to his word. So where is God asking you to trust him? Where is he asking you to step out in faith where maybe you cannot see around the corner? Or even where is he asking you to wait until he determines the time is right. And this last one is for me. What excuses are you willing to let go of and put in the work to make the change? 
Oh, Heavenly Father, your word is good for the soul today. We thank you, Lord, that you have put it in our hearts, put it in our hands so we can hide it in our hearts so that we can avoid sinning against you. We thank you, Lord, that you warn us, that you love us, that you walk with us every step of the way. All glory, honor, and praise belongs to you and you alone. In Jesus' precious and holy name.